1: Spreading freedom across the nation. This
3: is three, two, one.
4: the Buck Sexton Show.
3: Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here as always. Phone lines open 888-900-3393. nine hundred three three nine three. We're going to take a bunch of calls today. We are days away from the presidential election. There is no way around it. We're going to have to be covering a bit of. The latest goings-on in all things Trump v. Hillary. I do bring some good news. I guess I've already brought it. It has already been brought. Uh, and that is that this thing is almost over, which I'm looking forward to. This is the first election that I've ever been aware of where people who cover elections for a living are like, please make it stop. Please make it end. Those who are political analysts and pundits and commentators out on the scene, they just want they just want it to be over. We just want to know. There's nothing. In, there's nothing inspiring going on here. M- maybe Trump will win and exceed expectations of a lot of Republicans and be fantastic. I don't know. But as of right now, there's nothing inspiring going on. Period. Okay. I, 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 on either side, with anybody, uh, with Hillary, it's it's just turned into an outright mockery of rule of law, due process. Our government is increasingly a laughing stock, at least to those of us who are honest and paying attention. I guess the good news didn't last very long. I had some good news for you there, and then I quickly had to transition into some not-so-good news. The more I've thought about it, by the way, the more I don't know how to get around this construct that I've made. The more I've thought about it, the more I think I'm right, which isn't always the case. I guess it often is with this stuff. And that is that there's nothing that will come out of the Anthony Weiner laptop investigation situation on the classified side that will in any way harm Hillary Clinton legally. And I don't even think it's going to uh, bedevil her that far into her administration if she, in fact, wins. Because, keep in mind, we've already established that the classified information was on, that's already done. And there's not going to be any difference in intent or anything else. So classified existing on Abedin's server, they're just, they're not going to bring any charges. I, I don't see how they could bring any charges, given the precedent they've set of, well, there was no intent here. You'll notice, by the way, that uh, vice chairman of the, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that they're, they are going to send away to prison. They didn't get him on divulging classified. They got him on lying about divulging classified, a very interesting distinction, sort of like uh, Martha Stewart, by the way. Some of you will recall, they didn't send Martha Stewart away for insider trading. They sent her away for lying about calling her broker because she was concerned that they were looking at uh, her stock trade for insider trading. They put her away, you will recall, for uh, not even committing a crime, for lying about a non-crime crime. They put Martha Stewart away. And for—and this is somebody who obviously had very expensive lawyers and has a fair amount of clout. She's a billionaire, I believe, or at least close to one. She got locked up. Usually it's the procedural crimes that get people. It's the procedural missteps in the cover-up that often are what gets people sent away because that's, that's what's easier to prove. I remember speaking to a friend of mine who was... Uh, a former U.S. attorney, and he was saying, you know, one of the the problem that the drug dealer has isn't usually the drugs. It's the cash. You see, drugs, you know, to stay away from. Drugs, you have the mules carry for you. Drugs, you have the lower level, the street guys, the hustlers, the the pushers, the people out there. And, and they're, yeah, they're risking a decade in prison or they're risking. And you hope that at the federal level, you manage to sort of work your way up the food chain and eventually you get a big fish and you think that you're doing something in the drug war. I don't think you generally are, but nonetheless, law is a law and people want to stop this poison from being on the streets. And so that's what, what that's how they do it. But the cash is what's tough for the kingpin. That's where they run into problems, because how, how do you explain Millions of dollars in actual cash in duffel bags found on your premises, right? Not declared to the, not declared to the IRS. I mean, this is sort of like the old Capone thing, right? Didn't they get him on mail fraud or ta- tax evasion? I forget which one. Maybe both. That's what they went after the biggest, the biggest uh, organized crime figure in Chicago. Got him on what would be considered sort of more of a of a technicality crime. More of a malum prohibitum than a malum in se. Malum prohibitum is the government says you can't do this because we say so. Malum in se is this is bad, you know it's bad, and the government says you can't do it because it's bad. You see, the Hillary cabal, the Clinton cabal, they got a pass on all the malum prohibitum stuff. They have been allowed to skate on all these issues. And I think you can judge for yourself. We had that. Uh, Forthright, and and you know, I appreciate him coming on that former assistant FBI director. But when I ask, is this a different situation? I mean, he's sort of sort of saying yes, sort of saying no. uh Is it special treatment for the Clintons? I think the answer is quite obviously, yeah, it is. Because usually, when the target of the DOJ, or when the DOJ rather sets its sights on somebody or some organization or something. It's trying to just get a conviction. Now, I don't even necessarily, I don't even really agree with that mentality. I think that justice should be the primary goal, and I, I actually would be much more lenient on lying about non-crime. Uh, that doesn't mean it's okay, but I think that in terms of sentencing and, and level of charge, I think some of the 1001, which is the federal code under which lying to the FBI falls, is too harshly applied and also applied with uh without the due without all due impartiality, I think that some people get a pass and some people don't Bill Clinton lied under oath did he get a pass? Does anybody think he didn't lie under oath that's a crime. people get in real trouble for that perjury you know it's a, it's an actual thing that people get charged for and can get sent to prison for as i've said Martha Stewart sent to prison lying about a non-crime chairman of the JCS they didn't charge him with any crime other than lying be pretty rough for them to put put him away for possibly verifying information that's already out in the public sphere allegedly uh, whereas Hillary Clinton's letting all this stuff fly around on personal servers and was almost certainly according to all IT experts vacuumed up by foreign intelligence services when she was operating on their soil on their when she was on their soil. So, there was a different standard applied that, that was applied here. We we know this, but the other very important data point I think, as we go through the Clinton corruption, and we're going to be talking about this a fair amount, along with some other stuff. And Friday, I'm just you know, I'm planning to mix in some some funky business, so we don't just get stuck in the craziness of the election cycle the whole time. Everyone seems to like this sort of real the super freestyle Friday show as we're talking about all kinds of random learning about solar systems and Sasquatch. It's been great. Back to the Clintons for a second here. I've always said from the beginning that corruption was the bigger threat to the Clintons' future or charges of corruption, perceptions of it, than mishandling of classified. I knew that with classified, there's always a gray area case to make. You can always say, well, is it really classified, classified? Did I know? Did anyone get to it? There's so much room for obfuscation. There's so much opportunity to muddy the waters that, as we see, the Clintons have seized upon. But with corruption, everybody understands why that's bad, right? Whether something is marked, classified or not, when it's sent over an unsecure server, people like me and many of you listening, and I appreciate all of you who send me messages from either being inside the military, inside the DOD establishment, in any capacity, inside the intelligence community. And we're all just constantly sending messages back and forth. I mean, other people on Team Buck that know this stuff just as well or better than I do from having had clearances. And we're just like, this is crazy, right? I mean, any of us, we'd be toast. We'd be done. You'd be begging not to get sent to prison, never mind running for president. But on the corruption side of things, when Hillary Clinton's uh, and, and her husband are getting enormously lucrative speaking engagements when Bill Clinton is the most highly paid, least hardworking university chancellor in the history of the planet, which I think is a true statement based on that. Uh, whatever. I forget the name of the schools that, where he was chairman, but we've talked about it here on the show before. He's getting paid like 13 million dollars over a number of years to be a for profit school chancellor. What was he doing for them? Oh, that's right. They had a big subsidiary that was funded by the State Department, wasn't? Bill Clinton's wife running the State Department at the time. I guess that's just a coincidence. It's just all coincidences. There's a desperation coming up in the media too, because I have to say I have to say it, and I'm not some WikiLeaks defender. I, I don't. I don't advocate for WikiLeaks, and I, I am un, uncomfortable and disapprove of violating the law in order to get information. But once the information's out there, I'm not going to ignore it. Thanks to WikiLeaks, we know much more about the Clinton operation and how the insiders function and think than we used to. We also know about how deeply in the tank the media is for Hillary Clinton. And as I've said, it's been more instructive than with the Obama situation. And I know that some of you may may disagree with me on this point, but I think it's a very relevant one. With Obama, it was they were in love. And when you're in love, you just – we all have a, a certain sympathy for that feeling. And I know you're like, Buck, how could they be in love with someone they don't even – know? But you know what I'm saying. They were just starry-eyed and starstruck looking at Barack Obama who does give a good speech, who does have a charming family uh, and, and isn't some disgusting sleazeball you know, with the interns and all this other stuff and, and was the first black president, is the first black president. It's easier to explain away the sort of fanboyism and fangirlism of the press with Obama. With Hillary Clinton, it's they're just complicit in this mob boss's activity. With Hillary Clinton, the press isn't standing around singing hosannas and adoration of how fantastic the candidate is, as they did with Barack Obama, which was not impartial and it was embarrassing and journalistic ethics were thrown out the window and all the rest of it. But I have I have a greater tolerance for that or a greater ability to at least kind of understand where they're coming from, even if I deeply disapprove, which I do. But at least I kind of get it right. It's like when your buddy's in love with somebody, you know, that it's not the right person. but You're like, all right, you know, he or she's going to go down this path. But with Hillary, the media is, you know, helping dispose of the metaphorical bodies of her opponents. I mean, the the media is complicit. They're there. They're a part of this disgusting machinery of the Clintons. And I don't mean just cheering it on. I mean, they're actually actively colluding, as we have seen, with the Clintons to help. They've cast out any pretense of journalistic objectivity, and, and even, I think, more to the point, they've cast out any pretense of ethics in this whole process they are just cheerleaders for Clinton even if it makes them look foolish and venal and unseemly in the process they will you see they would prostrate themselves for Obama they will debase themselves for Hillary it's an important distinction right they would worship Obama but they would Swim around in the sewer to help Hillary. It's a difference. And that's where we are with them now. And they're worried. They're concerned. We're going to talk about this as well today. The polls are tightening. It is a closer race. Nobody really knows where this thing is going to go. If you had told anybody a year ago that Vegas odds at this stage of the game with mere days left would be that Donald Trump has a 30% chance of being the next president of the United States, roughly. I think a lot of folks would have laughed in your face. Well, that's where we are right now. With all the, the the one after another accusations of women saying that he grabbed them and that very uh disturbing and and very destructive of perceptions of his character tape of Donald Trump on that bus all that all that stuff's out there. imagine by the way, if we didn't have WikiLeaks, imagine if that stuff wasn't out there right now, isn't it amazing to see how outgunned the, at least, mainstream conservative press, just because there's so f- so fewer of them, uh, by the, the Clinton-loving press. It's, it's like a 10-to-1 advantage. It's enormous. But corruption has always been the threat. Corruption has been what I think the media is concerned. If it really to- takes hold in, in the public's mind that the Clintons are for sale... And will sell out America. We know they're for sale. But will actually sell out their country for a dollar. That Bill Clinton, to borrow from Flaubert, would willingly pay for the pleasure of selling himself. If that perception becomes widespread in this country, and I mean becomes in the next few days widespread enough, that is the Achilles heel of the Clinton machine. It's also why, as we'll get into, the... Department of Justice wants to just do everything they can to keep a thorough investigation of Clinton corruption from happening. The classified they've already got the antidote for. But Clinton corruption could be the virus that brings down the whole campaign, and they know it. They know it. We'll go into a break. We'll be right back.
1: This is the Buck Sexton Show,
4: the Blaze Radio Network.
0: No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when
2: canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply.
1: Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton.
4: On the Blaze Radio Network.
3: Quiz custodiat ipsos custodes. Phrase from the Roman poet Juvenal, who will guard the guardians or who will watch the watchers? Some people also use as a variant of it. A question we may want to keep in mind in the days and weeks and months ahead, especially given some of what we have learned about, oh, the thoroughness and impartiality that we should all expect from the investigation of Huma Abedin's emails as they pertain to Hillary Clinton and not just the mishandling of Classify, but also, of course, one would think the possibility of Clinton corruption or rather the proof of Clinton corruption that we all know has been there all along. Because of WikiLeaks, once again, we now know that the Department of Justice's Peter Kadzik, who is the individual chosen to give a very close review, to give very thorough scrutiny to the Huma Abedin emails. Mr. Kadzik has some interesting connections. Mr. Kadzik is supposed to be impartial in all this, of course. Hat tip zero hedge here for pulling some of this together. Um, But Kadzik is also somebody whose son was looking for a job on the Clinton campaign, as I understand it. Huh. This is also what Zero Hedge writes. Ironically, it's the same Peter Kazakh who has proven his impartiality in mul- multiple WikiLeaks, including this newly released bombshell in which Kadzik provides a very helpful heads-up about Hillary's email server investigation. This is what Kadzik emailed to John Podesta on his Gmail account on May 19, 2015. There is a Hillary Clinton oversight hearing today where the head of our civil division will testify, likely to get questions on State Department emails. Another filing in the FOIA case went in last night or will go in this AM that indicates it will be a while before the State Department posts the emails. Why is this being sent via a Gmail account? And why is Kadzik, who is a DOJ employee involved in this investigation? Directly corresponding with a Hillary Clinton chieftain. Does somebody want to take a stab at that one? Perhaps we can ask some of the people who think that when Podesta, right when the New York Times broke the story of Hillary's private server, when Podesta says we're going to have to dump the emails. Maybe we can bring out some of those clowns who say, yeah, by dump we mean publicly show them all in the spirit of absolute transparency that has just ensconced the Clinton email situation I mean you've got to be kidding me but again this is what I meant it's not about prostrating before Obama anymore now it's about debasing in front of Hillary it's about having no scruples no morals it's about becoming like them see that's what happens that's what happens when you're so dedicated to the Clinton staying in power that nothing else matters anymore you actually become Clintonian in the process people can pull the lever for Trump with glee in their eyes Or holding their nose. But at least we're not all rolling around in the muck, being disgusting, talking about how perfect he is all the time.
4: The Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. sexton show on the blaze radio network
3: all right team we're going to switch gears for a second spy time
4: agent you are joining a clandestine meeting in progress you will now be read into sensitive programs in real time do not communicate this information with any other assets in the field this is spy time
3: John Schindler, national security columnist for The Observer, formerly of the NSA, no such agency, joins us now. His latest piece is McCarthyism 2.0 has infected the Democrats. John, great to have you.
5: Great to be here as always, Buck.
3: All right. So there's some shenanigans going on with the Russians. We've talked about it here on the show before. But now the Democrats, perhaps in a bit of a panic mode, are just pointing to Russia for all of their problems or too many of their problems, it seems.
5: Yeah, I mean, as you and I have been talking about and I've been writing about for the last year, the Russians really are engaged in espionage and what we would call covert action to sway uh, our election, to sort of mess with the American body politic using WikiLeaks and others. That is all true. It's also true that Donald Trump has weird ties to Moscow that we need to resolve. What is not true, emphatically not true, is the messaging we're getting from top Clinton surrogates in the last few days, Harry Reid, uh, James Carville, Howard Dean, this is all some sort of Kremlin-orchestrated Republican Party conspiracy against Hillary. That is not only not true, that's really dangerous to make these sort of unsubstantiated, deadly serious allegations about your political opponents. And that's exactly what Democrats are doing in their panic with our election less than a week away.
3: Now, not to, uh, uh, not, not to give him too little or too much credit, didn't James Carville say that he thought the KGB was behind this? So he's, he's a little yeah. behind the times.
5: In a quarter century behind the times, KGB was disbanded 25 years ago in 1991. He said the KGB in concert with uh, the FBI Director Comey and the House Republicans were waging what you and I professionals would call covert, covert political warfare to prevent Hillary's election. This is this is. You know, moonbat crazy kind of stuff, folks. Let's make very clear. To, to make the allegation that the House Republicans are in cahoots with the FBI and as the KGB or whatever you want to call it, these national intelligence, is something so nutty I never thought it would appear in the mainstream media in this country. But there it is, James Carville, the raging Cajun, for many decades the most favored surrogate for, for Bill and Hillary Clinton, saying what amounts to really harmful crazy talk.
3: Now, I'm just wondering, why is it that other countries, I mean, China comes to mind, we know China is involved in all kinds of uh, so, you know, cyber activity around the world and against us in a, in a nefarious fashion. Uh, and, and I think one day we will wake up and realize that one of the greatest thefts of intellectual military and, and intelligence property yeah. that's ever occurred in history has happened through China cyber espionage. I, I think that, I think that day will come. I think it's just a, a ways away. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in the meantime, why is it just Russia and using WikiLeaks as a cutout? If, I mean, the impact that WikiLeaks has had on this, on this election is very real. <laughs> so why are yeah. other countries yeah. trying to get in on this action? Is is kind of what um, I'm wondering.
5: Other- other countries do make no mistake. Uh, you know, plenty of countries uh, recruit spies in Washington. Do try and gain political advantage on issues they care about. To give you a very, you know, not exhaustive list, the French do it, the Turks do it, the Israelis do it, even the Greeks do it on kind of niche issues. The Russians are different from the Chinese. The Russians are very adept at this in sort of a strategic sense. The Chinese, as you said, are really good at stealing our military industrial secrets online using human agents. They've been doing it a very long time, and it's really, really alarming. The Chinese do not have a sophisticated understanding of what I'd call political warfare or covert political warfare that the Russians have been doing for a century. Um, It was sort of with the mother's milk of the KGB, and nothing's changed. The Russians aim big. The Russians use what they call active measures, which is a sort of a – we don't have this term, but it's sort of a a strategic use of propaganda – to influence your enemies and adversaries. And that's exactly what's happened with WikiLeaks. You said WikiLeaks has had a real impact. Every single day, the Democrats are fighting off the WikiLeaks revelations, which are pretty obviously actually collected by Russian intelligence and then passed to Assange or whoever is running WikiLeaks these days, since Assange doesn't have Internet access. Um, And it's it's, it's affecting our politics in a serious way. And the Russians are very adept at that. And we do need to be vigilant about this, because it's also not going away. But it's a big step from being vigilant about counterintelligence to saying the Republican Party is in bed with the Kremlin, because that's now, what Democrats
3: are now, doing. Now, given, given that WikiLeaks, and you're saying through Russian intelligence, let's say Russian intel, you know, FSB, or one of their units, they get they get access to the Podesta stuff. They pass it to WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks yeah. acts like, you know, oh, we don't know where this is. You know, just came from the sky. Uh, yeah. We've always right. been told that Hillary's use of her private email on foreign soil meant that there was very likely penetration of that system that we wouldn't necessarily even or she wouldn't certainly wouldn't have been aware of and would be hard to prove after the fact. Right. But the assumption from it from professionals, I believe I've even heard you say this, but I've certainly heard this from others, including very uh, senior, you know, NSA and, and other intel officials is, look, if you're using this stuff on foreign soil and it's just an unclass email system, you better be prepared for this information and be in the hands of, you know, whomever, uh, whomever. Yeah. yeah. Wh- whoever controls that soil. So then it is, it, it is at least possible, isn't it, John, that Russian intel, if Hillary transited Russia and used her private server, would be able to, through WikiLeaks, at a cutout at some point, and they'd have to do it. you would think in the next few days, although they could do it after she wins the election and just want to mess, yeah. with, mess right. with the next president. Everyone's assuming that you know, they're just going to stop when she, be, when she wins. I don't think that's <laughs> true. Um, no. But they could have the classified emails and release them in unredacted form. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be feasible?
5: Uh, absolutely, and I, I think you've hit the nail on the head here. We know that Hillary, as Secretary of State, traveled the world, including multiple trips to Russia and China. We also knew that she was using her unsecured personal BlackBerry, which turns out had a lot of classified on it, when she was standing in Russia and China. The odds of Russian and Chinese intelligence intercepting those messages is quite literally 100%. There's no doubt about that. They know she's going to be in town. They're looking for her signals. And they're not hacking. This is straightforward signals intelligence interception of unencrypted Unclassified communications with that break that would have been, it would have been rather easy actually for the Russians or Chinese to use that information to crack into other systems as well in a serious and sustained basis. I think anyone who understands twenty cents twenty first century espionage knows that many foreign countries above all the Russians and Chinese are probably sitting on quite literally all of hillary 's emails which they can release at any time and if you hit on another key point, which is the Russians are pretty cagey about this and they will want to hold some of the really good stuff back in the case that Hillary becomes president. They can humiliate her further. They may be able to blackmail her or people senior in her soon-to-be administration, probably. Uh, And that is just catastrophic stuff. The Russians will hold stuff back given they probably have tens of thousands of radicums.
3: Right. So this is what's... The fascinating dynamic, I think, plays out here is And John talks about this in his piece, by the way, which is McCarthyism 2.0 has infected the Democrats. It's on the Observer.com right now. Uh, the, there is a personal beef between uh, between Hillary and Putin, or Putin doesn't like Hillary, right. and you say it st- stretches back to at least, he probably hasn't liked her for a lot of reasons for a long time. I believe really to put money in the fact that Putin's actually a misogynist anyway, but he, he doesn't Austria. like her. Be- yeah, I mean, just, just based on, come on, the guy's, you know, it's yeah. Putin. But he, he doesn't like her because of the protests and, and the State Department's, what he believes, interference in, in his prerogatives in Russia. But it's much more, if he's just trying to sort of, stick out one finger you know towards towards america and the hillary administration it's actually i think much more damaging to completely hobble her and and make her make her absolutely untrustworthy in the eyes of a a majority of the american people or vast majority of the american people more so than already once she's won the election because then what do we do so i think that that you might have some of the worst stuff that they have come out once she's sworn in as commander in chief
5: I think that's very likely for a couple of reasons, one of which, as you said, they, that's how they operate. Um, and two, remember, I don't think Putin's foolish. I think there is an understanding that Hillary, if she is sworn in in January as our new president, will be extraordinarily angry with Russia and with Putin for their antics during her election campaign. And the Clintons want payback more than any other human human goal, as far as one can tell, and they will want it against Russia. So it would behoove the Kremlin to be holding on just what you and I would call some good stuff, uh, you know, compromising materials, what the Russians call kompromat, on Bill and Hillary to be used in the spy war come January 20th. So I, I think you can pretty much bet on that.
3: And now there hasn't been, on the Trump side of things, uh, we, Trump has said things about Russia that are, you know, are boneheaded, and, and we've discussed that uh, at some, oh we've discussed a little bit here yeah. on the show. Uh, but the Democrats are, are actually sort of pushing this line that there's this there's this collusion going on between Trump and the FSB. I don't think Trump has those connections, or honestly, even that sort of foresight or sophistication. I mean, the Russians, yeah. it seems, are trying to help Trump, but I don't think Trump is sending Russia email or sending Putin emails saying, "Yeah, we need another document dump." And the Democrats are kind of running with that no. story.
5: Right? Well, I think they're pushing it way too far. I think it's very clear that uh, Trump has. Kremlin sympathies. He has sort of a man crush on Putin that is troubling. He's made comments that are very reflective of taking the Kremlin line on issues like Syria and Ukraine. And again, I I find that very troubling. That is not the same thing as saying he's sort of some paid asset or a mole of the Kremlin. I I think he is, the Russians would call him an agent of influence. That is someone who can further Kremlin aims, but is not a human intelligence asset in a conventional sense. Uh, And they have a lot of these, by the way, throughout the Western world and have for a very long time. And some of them do it just for, you know, because they like Russia. Some of them do it for money. Some of them do it to get political favors. It's a complex picture. But I'm with you. I think the notion that, you know, the the FSB and Trump are having daily meetings online about, you know, what's the dumb on on Hillary going to be tomorrow I think is very far-fetched. There are individuals who are or have been around Trump, like Paul Manafort, uh, like Mr. Flynn, like Carter Page, who have weird, unsettling ties to the Kremlin, but we don't have any evidence of them to Mr. Trump himself, and that is a smoking gun you would need to find if you want to make this out as sort of the the, the sort of you know Siberian candidate, as some liberals call, have have called Trump, uh, that, that he is un- un- under control.
3: Right? It seems it seems like it, it can't be a coincidence, or it's just too much for anyone to believe, except it's true. Both Manafort and Podesta. Get a lot of you have know, gotten a lot of cash from Russia in the past, oh
5: yeah well, and, and, and so Manafort uh, especially, but Podesta has millions as well, and as i 've reported on look let 's be very clear if trump weren 't in this race, Hillary and team hillary 's ties to the Russians alone would be seen as extraordinarily serious because they 're deep and they 're financial, and that tends to get lost in all this uh, hillary uh, there, I have serious counterintelligence concerns about Hillary and Podesta and many others senior in the Clinton camp. So Trump's not the only one here who has things to hide and should be concerned about the FBI looking into him. I mean, that's sort of the big irony here. Um, you know, why, why is Podesta taking money from, you know, kremlin, Kremlin-backed kremlin banks? Why has Hillary gotten in bed you know, you know through the Her Foundation with the Russian equivalent of Silicon Valley, which is a completely Kremlin-owned state entity with deep ties to the Russian intelligence services? There are a lot of questions here that really we need to ask and answer, but preferably in a this passionate, nonpartisan, analytical kind of way, and that's not happening. This is all become a partisan food fight, which is where my accusation of McCarthyism comes from. The Democrats have to be a lot more careful about accusing the GOP of being some sort of Kremlin
3: huh. front. It's, it's, it's a sort of knee jerk reaction you get from the media whenever whenever Hillary or yep. the Democrats do something wrong. It's always Republican overreach. This time around, there actually has been some Democrat overreach.
5: They really are. I mean, I mean, I I knew when Howard Dean of screaming fame comes out and says Comey has, it is on the side of Putin on in the email gates scandal. That's a flat-out crazy thing to say. In what sense is the head of the FBI on the side of Putin on anything? That's something you better have proof to prove. And, of course, there is no proof. Yeah. just Yeah, wildly the irresponsible
3: stuff from Howard Dean, but not wildly surprising. John Schindler, at 20 Committee, everybody on Twitter. You're going to want to follow him if you're on Twitter. And check out his piece on TheObserver.com right now. Mr. Schindler, always a pleasure, sir. Great pleasure, Bob. See you next time. Bye. Yep. Team, we'll be right back.
5: Beck Sexton,
3: the
4: Blaze Radio Network.
1: Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: So at first, Barack Obama had only the nicest things to say about FBI Director Jim Comey, and th- those are his initial his initial comments, the initial reaction. I think because he realizes, as many others have been pointing out, that uh, if he were to come down too hard on Comey, uh, why not then just appoint a special prosecutor? Doesn't want to box himself into that. But he's taken a slightly different tone now that a few days have passed. We see the polls tightening. We see that this does have an impact on Hillary Clinton. After all, he said in an interview. This is Obama saying in an interview to now this news. What is now this news? Okay, uh, now this news that I, quote. I do think that there is a norm that when there are investigations, we don't operate on innuendo. And we don't operate on incomplete information and we don't operate on leaks. President Obama lacking, I think, an understanding of irony here, uh, because clearly the innuendo here is that Comey is operating on innuendo innuendo and leaks. Uh, And he says we operate based on concrete decisions that are made. When this was investigated thoroughly last time, the conclusion of the FBI, the Justice Department, the conclusion of repeated congressional investigations was she made some mistakes, but there wasn't anything that was prosecutable. Okay, well, all Comey said is there's new stuff. We're going to look at it. Is he supposed to pretend there's not new stuff? Wouldn't the decision to hide the FBI's knowledge about new stuff before an election be much more of a clearly partisan decision than to just say, look, we've got new stuff. Make of that what you will. But there's new stuff. That's just reality. It's just the truth. Oh, now President Obama has a little problem with the truth. Now he's not so excited about things. Now all of a sudden he's got to take a couple take a couple of cheap shots at Mr. Comey just because Comey's coming out there and saying, hey, got some stuff here, some things you might want to take a peek at. All right, we're going to get into a little bit more of the details, the investigative side of all this, and then we're going to talk about the polls and the uh, tightening in the polls and... Uh, we've got a lot of show to get through today. It's going to be fun. 888 900 3393 is the phone line number. We would very much like to hear from you, Team Buck. I'm going to go into a quick break here. I'll be back. Top of the hour. Stay with me.
1: You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Across the nation, this
4: is the Buck Sexton Show.
3: All right, team, welcome back to hour two. We're joined by our friend Andy McCarthy. He is a best-selling author, contributing editor to National Review, and also a former Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. He's got a couple of pieces on NationalReview.com. We're going to talk about it right now. Andy, great to have you as always.
2: Buck, my pleasure.
3: All right, the Clinton emails are critical to the Clinton Foundation investigation. Andy, in your piece published yesterday on National Review, you get into some key stuff about the Clinton emails and the Foundation that I think have evaded much of the public's attention, like, for example, the significance of the Eastern District of New York in all of this. Please tell us about it.
2: Yeah, it's a a little detail that's uh, been passed over. Evidently, Buck, what we learned in this blockbuster Wall Street Journal report by Devlin Barrett earlier this week is that the FBI has been investigating the Clinton Foundation for over a year and that the investigators assigned to that case tried to get access, as you would expect them to, to the laptop computers of of, – I'm sorry, Cheryl Mills and Heather Samuelson, which contain – the, or contained at least, the emails of Mrs. Clinton, because remember Samuelson and Mills were the ones who did this cockamamie vetting process where, you know, they decided which of her emails were going to be turned over to the State Department and which she would retain and eventually try to destroy. So obviously, agents looking at the the Clinton Foundation, now that we know how uh, intertwined mrs clinton's office at the state department was with the activities of the clinton foundation obviously they would want to look at those emails uh they were stopped from doing that by uh federal prosecutors in the eastern district of new york and the reason that's relevant is that is the office that was run by loretta lynch for six years before she was elevated to attorney general by uh president uh, president obama Not only that, uh, it's the office that uh, she first came to national prominence in when she was first named U.S. attorney by President Bill Clinton uh, in 1999. And, of course, it's uh, President Clinton who she meets with in this uh, furtive tête-à-tête on the tarmac in Arizona only days before, lo and behold, it's announced that Mrs. Clinton isn't going to be indicted. So I think... You know, this isn't just any attorney general's office, any U.S. attorney's office. There are 94 across the country. This is Loretta Lynch's U.S. attorney's office.
3: And I think it's
2: quite interesting that it's that office that's blocked the FBI from doing what I think would be a pretty rudimentary investigative step.
3: You know, I I had a a former assistant FBI director on yesterday, Andy, and and I, I kept pushing him on the point. And I think he was trying to repair some of the damage done in, in the public's eye about sort of the, the integrity of the FBI's investigative uh, procedures with regard to the both of the Clinton investigations that have happened or both the Clinton uh, aspects of this, the Clinton corruption case, as well as the classified email. And uh, the, the point that I couldn't get a satisfactory answer from him on was, why is it that all of the usual pressure brought to bear by the FBI which is a means of getting truthful information, right? You've got the, you can't lie to FBI agents. They can use the subpoenas to get things. And the, of course, U.S. attorneys can do the same stuff. None of those usual procedural pressures seem to have been brought to bear here at any stage in the process. This was like, a, this was all a friendly chat between friends that was going to end nothing. Am I missing something with that? Is there any point at which they were using real, uh, you know, We're using the full powers and pressure of the office or of their investigative techniques to try to get after the truth here. Uh,
2: I hate to do this Buck, but I think I'm actually going to make it worse than what you're (laughs) describing because um, for, well, you know, from what I see, for example, there's a report today uh, in the Washington examiner that says that they didn't even acquire the uh, communications devices, whether they were laptops or smartphones or whatever, of, a number of the key subjects in the Clinton investi- in the uh, Clinton emails investigation. Uh, you know, I think lost amid all the furor of what we've discovered about this um, wiener Aberdeen laptop is the question which, you know, probably popped to, into the heads of a number of us who are experienced at this sort of thing. Like, why are they finding out about this now? You know, why wasn't this computer uh, examined a long time ago? Well, it looks like, there's a lot of computers that, that should have been examined. And the reason I mention this, Buck, is this, it's not only important to remember what you're saying, which is that they have a lot of means to compel uh, the production of information. And to the FBI's defense, they need the Justice Department's cooperation for that, and this Justice Department has not cooperated with them in this investigation. But the other thing I would point out, and I haven't, I haven't heard this discussed much, I haven't thought about it much myself until today, but, you know, in addition to being the country's leading criminal investigative agency, the FBI is also our domestic security service. So it seems to me that quite apart from the, fact, uh, from the question whether there was sufficient evidence in this case to convict people, if there were a bunch of uh, laptops and smartphones lying around someplace that have top-secret special access program information on them that could be detrimental to the United States if that, if that stuff falls into the wrong hands. I don't understand why the FBI didn't go out and grab those things wholly apart from whether they would be uh, critical evidence in a, in a criminal investigation. So, you know, I think that there are, there are steps that they absolutely should have taken that they have not taken in this case, and to the extent that they've been claiming that this case was handled like every other case, you know, my God, I, I've never seen a case handled like this case.
3: Right, I mean, they, they act like, uh, or they've given the Clinton aides, as well as Hillary Clinton herself, all these uh, these sort of special perks. They they didn't go, they never right. convened a grand jury, they didn't use subpoenas, they gave them uh, what was it? Qualified immunity for the production of uh, of the laptops, and but but for the for yeah. the Eastern District of New York to say, well, you've got the laptops, but you can't look. We've got another concurrent investigation, and you can't look for the corruption stuff on those laptops. You can only look for the classified. It, it, that just seems like outright obstruction from Loretta Lynch's former you know former home turf.
2: Yeah it it certainly doesn't uh, it, it certainly doesn't make any sense to me because the other thing according to the Wall Street Journal article that the uh clinton foundation investigators were told about these laptops that had been seized in connection with the clinton emails part of the investigation or i guess i should say they're separate investigations i shouldn't uh, describe them as if they were all one uh, but one of the things they were told is you can't look at those emails because they were turned over to us uh under a uh, immunity agreement that limited uh you know, what we were allowed to look at and what we're allowed to use them for. And that's not true. They were turned over. It is true that they were turned over in connection with an immunity agreement, and it's a disgraceful immunity agreement because they should have used a grand jury subpoena. They shouldn't have been trading and cajoling the production of evidence that, that they could have compelled by law. But putting that aside, um, the only people who get immunity and limitations out of that agreement are Mills and Samuelson the people who cut the deals the FBI shouldn't be limited in any way with respect to how they can, what they can look at uh, and who they can use it against other than those two so if there's incriminating evidence on there with respect to Mrs. Clinton or other suspects in their investigation there's no limit on the use of that evidence against Mrs. Clinton just because they gave Cheryl Mills immunity there's a limitation as to Mills, but there's still limitation as
3: to Clinton. You have another piece, Andy, that I wanted to get to. While we still got some time with you on air here, Clinton State Department, a Rico enterprise. I mean, you walk through, and you're somebody who used to literally do this as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District. You walk through the evidence, as as it's already publicly known, for how the Clinton Foundation was operating as a as a criminal conspiracy. Uh, give us some of how is the how is Hillary's found or how is uh, the clinton state department rather a rico enterprise as you call it in this piece of national review
2: well buck as you know because uh, you've got experience in this sort of thing too when you're doing an investigation you have to have some kind of a rubric that you put it under so that you know what you're looking for and you know you know what sort of stuff to subpoena um You know, if you're if you got in a narcotics investigation, there's a certain way that you go about proving a narcotics crime. So you kind of you have to understand what you're dealing with before, you know, as an investigator, how to proceed. So it seems to me that in the framework of the Clinton Foundation piece of this, that I understand it, I would approach this as a racketeering enterprise because that tells me how I should go about investigating it. So under the racketeering laws. Um, you can criminalize or you can, you can criminally prosecute any association, in fact, which doesn't have to be a mafia family, which is what uh, Rico is most famous for. It can be uh, a charity that's only an ostensible charity that's really a fraudulent enterprise. It can be a political party. It can be a component of a government agency. Any association of people, a corporation, whatever, Uh, that conducts its affairs through what the law calls a pattern of racketeering activity, which is simply two or more specified felony offenses of federal or state law. And it seems to me that what's been uh, shown so far that we know of in connection with with all this is that Mrs. Clinton's office at the State Department was put in the service of the Clinton Foundation for the purpose of monetizing her political influence and giving people an end around uh, things like, uh, you know, the prohibition on foreign donations under the campaign finance laws. What people did instead with here is they just, you know, the foreigners gave the money to the Clinton Foundation, which would have been just like giving it to her as a candidate, right? Um, And the other evidence that you have here is, uh, is there fraud going on in the Clinton uh, Foundation, I would suggest that there is because fraud under federal law also includes um, the depriving of the public of the honest services of a public official if there's a quid pro quo kind of arrangement, like you give a donation to the Clinton Foundation and the State Department will do X, Y, or Z for you. Uh, Other racketeering predicates include uh, obstruction of justice, which uh, is important here, and bribery. So it seems to me that uh, it doesn't mean that I, I can say, sit here and say to you, I think they're guilty of this, but if I were investigating it, uh, I'd say there's evidence that certainly tends in that direction, and that is the framework that I would put it in as an investigator to try to conduct my investigation.
3: So you would conduct the investigation that way, but the uh, last question I want to ask you, Andy, uh, is if you, were, uh, if you were back as an AUSA, Based on what you know about the Clintons, based on what's already out there and established, do you think you could put this before a grand jury and get an indictment? Uh,
2: if Loretta Lynch didn't fire me first,
3: <laughs> okay. So that, that's a yes, but a qualified yes under the circumstances, <laughs> which is which yeah, is very well, yeah, understandable. Yeah, right. We
2: have to. We're living in a real world here, right, Buck?
3: I mean, yeah. But so you think there is enough? <laughs> there is enough evidence already. If if people were, if this wasn't the Clintons, if this was some other entity, some other group of individuals. You, you could bring a case and put it before a grand jury and at least want get an indictment. A lot,
2: I'd want a lot more evidence before I indicted the case, because as, an, as a prosecutor, I, want, I don't want to indict a case just on the standard for indictment, which is probable cause. I want to make sure I can convict people on trial before I pull the trigger, because right. it's a bad thing. It's bad practice to indict a case and hope that you're going to then get the evidence that's going to put you over the top. You need that evidence in hand first.
3: Gotcha. All right. Andy McCarthy, everybody, is a best-selling author and contributing editor of National Review. He's got a couple of great pieces on nationalreview.com right now, and you should also follow him on Twitter. Andy, great to have you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Buck. Guys, gals, back right after this break.
1: This is the Buck Sexton
4: Show. On the Blaze Radio Network.
3: The Buck Sexton Show. Hulk Hogan is accepting a thirty-one million dollar settlement from the website Gawker. Um, initially, uh, there was a hundred and forty million dollar jury, jury verdict involved here, but Hogan will take thirty-one million in cold hard cash. Um, I don't know what the, I know that Gawker has been sold to Univision for a for $130 million, $135 dollars. Million. Um, I, I hope this doesn't mean that Gawker is not, uh, is not going to be a thing of the past. Um, maybe Gawker is going to live to see another day. It's a shame. It's a, it's a, it's a smear site. It's uh, grotesque, and it really represents all the sort of worst, uh, worst impulses of people to destroy lives for sport and to profit off of it and to do anything to get clicks on the web. Uh, I, I know. I mentioned yesterday. There's that. Uh, that it's really worth reading. I, I'm sure many of you heard. I think Glenn talked about it. John, did Glenn talk about it on radio? The woman um, who made the the bad made the really stupid joke about when she went to Africa. Do you know what I'm talking about? Were you not familiar? I, I think I think Glenn talked about it. It was a New York Times piece where they where they kind of did a follow up with somebody who became the target of one of these social media sort of social media lynch mobs, if you will. I mean, one of these uh, these it became her i think her name was Justine Sacco and it she became the number one twitter trend in the world because of uh, an admittedly very uh very stupid and very insensitive joke but on top of that i mean you would like to think that most twitter jokes you could delete and 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 just say hey I'm, that was really dumb i'm sorry let's let's all let's all sort of move on and it won't happen again I feel like everybody everybody should get, you know, with, with a bad joke or whatever that's that's in the public like that, I think everybody should kind of get one. You know, not one that, I mean, hers was really bad. But I, but in general, so, but I guess you have to extend that to, you know, I feel like people should get at least one strike with that stuff. You know, you, you, should get, you should get one, I'm really sorry, that won't happen again with the highly inappropriate joke. Because otherwise what you've got is a situation we're in right now where, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've thought about making a joke on Twitter, especially maybe during the debates or something. And I'm like, but, you know, it's a little bit part of the it's a little on the edge. And part of the the joy of comedy and part of why it's so appealing to people is that, you know, you're pushing boundaries a little bit. And when you're pushing boundaries, sometimes you're going to go over the boundary. Right. Sometimes you are going to if you're trying to be funny and you're doing it consistently enough and you're good at it, you are going to go a little bit over the line as a conservative. That just means you're going to get annihilated. Um, and as a private citizen, I don't know, private citizens who who uh, engage in a lot of uh, risky commentary online, I, I don't know. I'm not always sure that that's, that's worth it, but hey, it's a free country, First Amendment, you know. At least the government's not supposed to be really go after you for this stuff, although increasingly I feel like that's not even true. Um, so anyway, go, go, back to the Gawker story here. It looks like they will... Uh, they'll settle with Hogan. They decided not to continue on with the litigation battle. And, and this site, I guess, will be back in business doing what I, I think it's probably still up now. I haven't even really checked. Is Gawker even still a site right now? I'll, I'll look this up right now. As I'm talking about this, I'm like, wait, it must still be a thing, right? Um, I don't know. Yeah. You no, know, no, I'm sorry. It shut down. It did shut down. Okay, so I'm right about that. Uh, I thought that was a. I thought that was a good day. I thought that was a day for justice when Gawker shut down. Um, uh, if you go back and read some of their stories, uh, it's just some of the worst, some of the worst trash imaginable, and they just they really enjoy. I mean, they definitely joyride in the wreckage of other people's lives in, in a way that is 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 sadistic, and it's amplified in the digital world. So I, I'm a little disappointed in a sense that. Gawker doesn't have to sort of just pay the whole hundred and thirty million. I guess they didn't have it, and who knows. And Hulk Hogan has got plenty of cash. I don't know when he decided to start wearing all black all the time, but I miss the old Hulk. Who, Hulk who uh, would I know his name is Terry Bolia, and he's a he was playing a character. I get all that. I'm not a kid anymore, but I remember when like Hulk Hogan was all about America and like ripping off his yellow shirt and you know looking at looking at the gun show when he was up in the, up in the ring and all that stuff. So yeah. Gawker might be back everybody it's quite a shame oh we got to talk about the race and how it is uh, tightening a little bit we'll get into some of the polls some of the swing state stuff all that and then third hour gonna get in a bit of a freestyle be right back
4: the Buck sexton show on the blaze radio network
1: The Buck Sexton Show.
3: All right, everybody, we're only a few days away from the presidential election, and we have not yet dis- discussed the horse race aspects of this. So it's time, giddy up, to tell us what's going on there and which side seems to be ahead. We're joined by our friend Guy Benson. He's the townhall.com political editor, he's also a Fox News contributor and author of End of Discussion. Mr. Benson, great to have you. Hello, Buck. How are you? Good, good, good. So uh, home stretch. Any way you slice it, this race is tightening. You wrote this, uh, what was it yesterday, the day before? Uh, tell us if, this is on townhall.com. How is the race looking right now? Is this thing actually getting closer with each passing day?
6: Yeah, it's definitely getting closer. There's no denying that, uh, but I still think that Hillary Clinton is the clear favorite to win. Does that mean that Trump has no chance? No. Uh, In fact, I have a piece out this morning at townhall.com explaining how he could win. It would be a combination of factors. And the math, at least electorally, is relatively straightforward. What Trump needs to do is win every Romney state. He is currently leading in the polling average in every Romney state except for North Carolina Depending on which poll you look at, North Carolina has had a couple good polls for him in the last couple days. Um, so that one's sort of a razor's edge, but Hillary Clinton has led for about a month in North Carolina. That's a state that is very important to keep an eye on for Trump. But if he can lock down all the Romney states and then add Florida, Ohio, and Iowa. He leads in all of those states just barely in the real clear politics polling average, talking within two points. I think two of those states are within less than a point, uh, especially with the new polls that just came out from CNN. So razor-thin in Florida, Ohio, and Iowa. But let's say he takes those and puts those on top of all the Romney states. Then he's in a position where he has to win one big blue state, Uh, sort of an electoral vote-rich blue state, or a combination of a couple smaller blue states. And so that's kind of Hillary's firewall, if you will. And there are a couple polls out today, one from Monmouth, one from Marquette, that show Clinton's lead in Pennsylvania shrinking to four points, but that's still four points. That's still a significant lead in Pennsylvania, which has really been a state where people keep waiting for Trump to break through. And he really hasn't fully been able to, at least in the polling. And then people started to turn over towards Wisconsin, saying, well, maybe Pennsylvania is gone, but maybe Wisconsin, there's a chance there with 10 electoral votes uh, at stake. And a new poll just came out from Marquette University. That's sort of the gold standard poll in the state. And it put Clinton up by six points. So, I mean, it's, it's still a difficult path ahead for Donald Trump looking at the electoral map. You could conceivably say, well, Nevada, the CNN poll that just came out has him slightly ahead in Nevada, although there are some politicos there throwing cold water on some of the internals. But still, let's just take the top lines. Let's say Trump were to win Nevada. Then he would need, again, with all those other states in hand, hypothetically, he would still need one more. He'd be at 265 electoral votes at that point. And so do you look at Wisconsin, where he's down six? Do you look at Pennsylvania, where he's down four or more? Do you look at New Hampshire? A couple polls have showed that one tied. Let's say he were to win New Hampshire. Then it's 269-269. And then there's also this outside factor as well, Buck, that people sometimes lose sight of, which is there are two states where the electoral votes are apportioned based on the victor in each congressional district. So that's Nebraska and Maine. Trump has been surprisingly strong in one of Maine's electoral districts, congressional districts, where he could potentially pick up one electoral vote. If he won that with this other map that I was just talking about, he would hit exactly 270. But there's also Nebraska, where Hillary Clinton has run pretty strong in one of those swing districts where she has a decent chance of uh, picking off an electoral vote there, which would put it back at 269-269. Uh, but again, I think that at the moment, I can be persuaded uh, you know, that Trump could get to 259 electoral votes like i think that the polling shows that that is not an unreasonable position for him to say that that's plausible 259 i'm just struggling to figure out where he would patch together the next you know 11 electoral votes that he would need with some combination of either f- straight up pennsylvania or some combination of wisconsin colorado nevada new hampshire which are all Nominally swing states, but appear to be you know tough sledding for him right now. Still,
3: I've heard some people say, and I wouldn't I wouldn't cite this as the conventional wisdom because you may dump a bucket bucket of water on her right now, and I want to ask you if that's what you want to do. But that will will we might know if this thing is all over as soon as the sort of the polls in the eastern Eastern Time Zone close. Uh, we could theoretically know it 's all over because if Trump loses Florida, where I think i 've seen some polls showing him ahead there, but I know that 's back and forth. if Trump loses Florida and Pennsylvania, this thing is more or less over. You agree with that, or you think there are some outliers where actually that 's not the case
6: Oh yeah, no, if Trump loses florida it 's over
3: it 's over right
6: yeah. now in the yeah, in the real clear politics average right now, Trump has a one point lead um in Florida. And there are some indicators in the early voting that are promising. Republicans are overperforming compared to 2012 um, in the early vote and absentee ballot numbers. So that's a good sign in Florida for him. Ohio, again, very close in Ohio and Iowa. But those are states where the early voting looks improved for Republicans. But then there's, you know, North Carolina, where black turnout is, I think, a worry for Democrats. But overall, the early voting trends... Don't look too bad for the Democrats. I think that'll. I, I think North Carolina is a really, really important state to keep an eye on uh, on the East Coast on election night. Well, because, what's the Trump I mean, strategy Florida, to make
3: sure that goes, you know, that goes red instead of blue? Or is there a Trump strategy to make sure that goes red instead of blue?
6: Well, Trump's spending a lot of his time. Right now, in places like Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, even New Mexico, he's spending time in blue states because he recognizes he has to pick off a blue state, at least one blue state somewhere. And North Carolina was a red state for Mitt Romney after Barack Obama won it in 2008. So it's been one of the swingier of the swing states in the last couple cycles, North Carolina has. Um, and I guess, you know, Trump only has so much time uh, you know, in the last six days here and I and the calculation that it appears that they've made is to spend their time in blue states hoping that the red states will all sort of come home so to speak. Now, meanwhile Democrats are definitely spending a lot of time in North Carolina. The president is gonna go down there. He's I think the Democrats are jittery about black voters and their turnout. Um, so again, going back to your question though, if Florida is Hillary's, then the election is over. If North Carolina goes to Hillary, then we're looking at a very difficult path, again, for Donald Trump. Because if you take all the states, again, all the Romney states, plus Iowa, Florida, Ohio, but subtract out New Hampshire, then you're at 244 electoral votes. And and you're really casting about where you are well shy of the 270 that you need. And you need to, at that point, you know, win let's say, you know, a Michigan plus a Wisconsin, or, a, you know, a Wisconsin plus, you know, Nevada, I'm just sort of spitballing here, plus one more, Colorado, and then, a, and then one of Maine's votes. I mean, if, if you don't win North Carolina and you're Trump, even if you have— Florida and Ohio and Iowa in your back pocket, although Iowa won't be till the central time zone. But if you've won Ohio and Florida on the eastern uh, time zone on election night, but North Carolina is not going your way, the path to 270 is exceptionally difficult. So case closed without Florida, really, really problematic without North Carolina. Uh, and I would also say that the Senate races in North Carolina – and New Hampshire in particular will be early bellwethers um, for the rest of the map in terms of the U.S. Senate. If Pat Toomey were to win, let's say, in Pennsylvania, I think that bodes very well for Republicans across the board for the rest of the night. If, let's say, uh, Richard Burr and or kelly ayotte lose in north carolina and new hampshire and let's say marco rubio is struggling or you know really neck and neck and it's a worry it's a nail-biter in florida i think that that uh, bodes poorly for republicans so i think i think we'll know quite a lot about the way this race is going to go when the networks start calling these races for uh, either trump or clinton down the eastern seaboard and again just to reiterate Uh, For your listeners, states that are literally on the eastern seaboard to pay very close attention to for the Senate are New Hampshire and North Carolina. And for the presidency, I would say North Carolina and Florida.
3: Guys, we're talking to Guy Benson. He is the politics editor at townhall.com. He also is a Fox News contributor. Uh, Guy, one more before we let you get back to uh, covering all the things going on with this race. And that's just the the control of the Senate. You mentioned a couple Senate races. I know you've got a piece up on Town Hall where you're looking at this state by state. Uh, How is it looking for control of the Senate?
6: Awfully, awfully close. So I've run a bunch of different scenarios, and I keep coming back to a 50-50 tie in the Senate. Now, I'm not saying that that's my prediction or that's exactly what's going to happen. But if you look at the polling, that is a very plausible outcome because Republicans have the tougher map to defend this time. Uh, That will flip again in 2018, where Democrats have a gruesome map to try to defend but uh, in order to win back the Senate, the Democrats need to net four Senate seats, assuming Hillary Clinton wins. Let's say Hillary Clinton wins the presidency, the Democrats need to get it to 50-50, and then Tim Kaine would uh, you know, break the tie uh, at least for a year, because then there'd be a, a special election in Virginia next year to replace him. But setting that to the side, looking at the here and now, uh, there are you know a handful of crucial races. Right now, I would say that the Democrats have... Um, only one locked in pickup, which is surprising. I would say even a couple of weeks ago, folks were saying that there were two or three locked in pickups, but those look more in doubt than ever. I think Illinois is where the Democrats are poised to defeat Mark Kirk and pick up that seat. So they're, they're plus one there. They need three more. Wisconsin has been a really, uh, tough race for Republicans for this entire cycle. Russ Feingold, uh, beating Ron Johnson pretty handily in most polling, but that has closed significantly in the last couple weeks. Both parties putting millions of new dollars into that race, which I think is a strong indicator. And then that Marquette University poll that I just mentioned showing Hillary Clinton leading Donald Trump in Wisconsin by six points. that came out literally uh, half an hour ago, I think, at this point, uh, shows Ron Johnson 45-44, just neck and neck with Russ Feingold. So... If Russ Feingold, the Democrat, pulls that out, then they're at plus two. I would still say Feingold is the favorite in Wisconsin, although Johnson is surging. In Indiana, Evan Bay had a big war chest and a 20-point lead, in, according to internal polls, when he jumped into the race. Uh, he has just been battered by one horrific headline after another in Indiana. That race is now tied with the momentum behind the Republican Todd Young in Indiana. So let's say Bayh is let's say he hangs on and only got about 60 seconds guy sorry democrats are then plus three they would need one more Then new hampshire's a good possibility pennsylvania maybe north carolina maybe missouri republicans have an outside chance of picking up not that outside they have a chance of picking up nevada but boy i think it's getting awfully close every single vote matters in these states
3: guy benson is a politics editor at townhall.com and a fox news contributor guy great to have you talk to you soon Thanks, Buck. Team Buck, we'll be right back.
4: Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Listening to the Buck Sexton Show.
3: So, uh, if you want to be up to speed on everything happening the election, I could recommend just go back and, and re-listen to uh, the Guy Benson rundown we just got there uh, on the, the horse race aspects of the election. Uh, very comprehensive, uh, great job by Guy. Just making sure you know what states are really in play, what really matters, and what the various paths are to 270 for Trump and also for Hillary. Uh, you'll notice not a lot of talk about a path for Gary Johnson to 270. I don't think that'll surprise a whole lot of you, but uh, just wanted to put that out there. Seems unlikely that uh, uh, unlikely that Gary Johnson's going to come out uh, with the nomination. Also, it seems to me that people figured out that Weld of Massachusetts is not even a libertarian. It's really been unfair. You know, this, I haven't mentioned libertarians in a while because I don't want to be beaten up on them or anything because they're my friends. But, you know, it would have been nice to at least have a libertarian running a libertarian ticket this cycle. That would have been a good thing, I think. Uh, it would have been made the race more interesting, to be sure. Instead, what we've had are really kind of two, uh, I, I don't know, two libertarian-leaning Democrats uh, who are out there representing the libertarian party. It seems sort of strange to me, but we'll see. I also did – I feel like Guy mentioned the possibility of a tie, an electoral college tie between Trump and Clinton, which – you know, I don't think that's going to happen. I know the odds are probably one in a thousand or something, but given how bonkers things have been over the last eighteen months or so, can you really say it's zero? You know, can you really say you're not even going to think about it a little bit? There's just a little part of me that likes to think about how how the world would explode if uh, if Trump and Hillary were were ended up in an absolute tie, electoral college tie. Oh man! And then Evan McMullin's in the mix; it gets crazy. Uh, anyway, we're going to be uh, we have a couple of interesting guests coming up the next hour, guys. We're not going to be talking much about the election. We've got some other things in mind for you. If you want to hear what those are, you're going to have to uh, stay with me here in the Freedom Hut, where there's always a space for you. Phone lines open still, 888 900 3393. Light them up. We'll be right back.
1: The
4: Buck Sexton Show.
1: Only on the Blaze Radio Network. across the nation. This is
4: The Buck Sexton Show.
3: All right team, welcome to our three. very pleased to be joined out by David French. He's a staff writer at National Review. He's also a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom and the co-author of several books including most recently the number one New York Times bestselling Rise of Isis: A Threat We can't Ignore. Great to have you David.
7: Well, thanks so much for having me.
3: Uh, so let's first, first just talk about it. I know you had a short piece in National Review, uh, I think it was on the corner, about Germany and the refugee situation, and it's something that I don't think a lot of people pay attention to, which is that sometimes it's those who are already in Germany who are doing the radicalizing. Walk us through this a little bit.
7: Yeah, this was a really intriguing little item in the, uh, in, in Reuters that basically said Syrian refugees are coming to Germany. And are finding that the German mosques are too radical for them, that they are uncomfortable in the German mosques. So uh, essentially there are two basic kinds of, just to oversimplify, two basic kinds of of mosques in Germany. The Turkish mosques uh, uh, servicing the large Turkish population in Germany, and then the Arabic-speaking mosques. And so Syrians don't speak Turkish, they speak Arabic. Um, the Turkish mosques tend to be more moderate in Germany, but the, the mosques that actually speak their language, Arabic, seem to be overrun with Wahhabists and Salafists. These are the extremist Islam uh, strains of Islam that that spawn jihad. So you actually have Syrian refugees being indoctrinated into Salafism and Wahhabism by German Muslims. Um, which is counterintuitive to what a lot of people would ordinarily think. But for those who've been paying close attention to what's happening in Europe, you know that there was already, even before this migrant population arrived, a radicalized Muslim population in Europe. Uh, they were preaching and speaking in uh, mosques constructed in Europe and staffed by Europeans.
3: And it also is is clear that they're preaching this uh, Wahhabist Islam to a group that would be, or at least ostensibly you'd think, it would be more susceptible to more extreme interpretations, just given the deprivations and the violence and the things that they've been subjected to. So they're sort of exploiting this refugee inflow after the Wahhabist ideology, which has already been exported by Saudi Arabia all across Europe, uh, has established roots there.
7: Right. I mean, you know, and that's, one of the one of the terrifying things and one of the disturbing things about uh, the, our reality is that Saudi Arabia, has, uh, our alleged ally, has been the primary exporter of this ideology. And they've been doing it for decades. And they do it all over the world. They don't just do it in madrasas in Pakistan and Afghanistan or in mosques in Syria. They've doing, been doing it all over, including Europe. And and that's the thing that is, um, and I think for Europeans is something they're going to have to grapple with for a generation or more is this notion that they have, they have had radical Islam. Radical Islam has been lavishly funded and supported, uh, by their alleged ally, the Saudis. And it's turning their population, uh, their Muslim population, many, many members of the Muslim population against their countries. Uh, and, and that's why what you're seeing in some of these terrorist attacks are coming from German citizens, coming from French citizens. Uh, and, you know, we've even had it in the United States coming from American citizens or American permanent residents um, who had been radicalized, again, here locally.
3: I want to switch gears a little bit to another post you have on NationalReview.com. We're speaking to David French, who's a staff writer at NRO. Uh, when college students think America invented slavery. I found this fascinating. Please tell us a bit about it.
7: <laughs> you know, you're never going to go wrong. Uh, you're never going to be able to overestimate the, the ignorance of the American college student. Uh, but there, there was a really interesting piece in the college fix that I highlighted of a professor who spent 11 years giving uh, his students essentially a civics quiz, uh, a short history quiz. And he found that they are ignorance of the wider world and in American history was pretty breathtaking, that, that they literally viewed slavery as essentially a uniquely American phenomenon, not knowing it, that it existed essentially in all cultures uh, across the entire world and in in, throughout the entire history of human civilization. They thought that it was something that the uh, Americans and Southern Americans had invented, making them sort of uniquely evil in the history of the world. Um, moreover, I mean, they when they were even asked about, say, how... How do you identify Thomas Jefferson? The overwhelming majority identified him as a slave owner and not as a president. So it it was fascinating to see the extent to which the effort to sort of re engineer public education hadn't really made American students more well informed. It had made them more, uh, had made them a, a sort of politicized, selectively ignorant.
3: You know, to, to sort of connect your uh, your two pieces here in in, uh, in a way, I, I'm always amazed at the lack of of I guess it's the lack of instruction in schools about this, but also even people who otherwise think of themselves as particularly well read and maybe even uh, erudite uh, have no no background, no knowledge whatsoever in the vast slavery uh, that was conducted. ...under the Ottoman Empire, uh, the enormous slave empire that the Ottomans were operating, and even up to and including the Barbary states and their raids in Europe and the seizing of, of Christian Europeans for centuries by Muslim states, oh, specifically for the purpose Five of slavery. They never talk about yeah. this.
7: It was, I mean, uh, the slavery was uh, it, looting, pillaging, and raiding the southern European coast for the purpose of taking slaves was common for centuries, resulting in millions of kidnappings for slavery, millions, uh, much less the slave empires that existed in the Americas when the Spanish first arrived. I mean, think about the Incas. They would conquer, uh, or the Aztecs, they would conquer neighboring tribes, seize people not just for slavery, but for human sacrifice on a mass scale. So, you know, it's, it's this weird world where you have, as I called it, the condesc- condescending ignoramus, that... The, the student who thinks that they understand the true history of America when they don't at all. They have no clue. Uh, they have no clue about the wider world. They look at America as this uniquely evil and uniquely pernicious place and the rest of the world being victimized by American, uh, you know, American colonialism and greed, when the reality is slavery was a fact of life across the generations and the millennia. And it was American culture and British culture, that really took the lead in putting a stop to it. Um, And it's not to our credit, obviously, that we continued the habit and pattern of slavery that long predated the founding of the United States. But it is very much to our credit uh, that we had a powerful abolition movement, that um, that we ended the scourge of slavery. It's very much to Great Britain's credit that it ended the scourge of slavery and even used the power of the Royal Navy to do so. To uh, destroy the slave trade, so you know. But again, people would say that British and American culture are, are colonialist and greedy and expansionist and terrible and uh, inflicting uh, tragedy on the rest of the world. When the, really the reality is pretty much the opposite.
3: And I know, David, you've spent some time, as have I, in some uh, some nasty places. And one thing that that can come up there, and this this is another. Uh, sort of thread that I pull from from your post here on National Review is that we talk about racism in America uh, a lot. And it's an issue that's often, you know, it's some it feels like some news channels are during periods of time entirely devoted to the subject of racism for weeks, perhaps even months on end. And I think that also that results in many young, particularly younger people and dare I even say millennials, which technically I count as one, I think maybe still. Uh, who believe that racism is a uniquely American experience, when actually spending time in other parts of the world, you realize most of the rest of the world is so much more racist than America that Americans couldn't believe it unless they heard it and saw it and experienced it for themselves.
7: Oh, they can't imagine. They cannot imagine. I mean, uh, you know, look, here's what's unique about America. We are a uniquely diverse, uniquely multi-ethnic and uniquely peaceful society for all of that diversity and multi-ethnicity. Um, if you look around the world to find other nations that have so many disparate groups with different backgrounds, not just different European backgrounds, but different backgrounds across you know Africa, the South America, Asia, all coming to the United States, where is another? democracy this diverse. Most other countries are far more centered around individual ethnicities or religious groups than we are in the United States of America. Uh, But we look at the friction around the edges, and of course there's friction around the edges. Everybody knows there is, but we look at the friction around the edges and we say, well, that's the story of our unique evil, rather than we, again, you flip it around. We are uniquely good as a nation, but we're not perfect. And you can't look at the imperfections and say that that denies our goodness.
3: I, I think just as as some uh, examples of what I was still alluding alluding to before. Uh, I have friends from South Asia who will tell who will tell anybody who wants to know that e- even to this day, culturally, I mean, they're not announcing this from you know, loudspeakers of political campaigns, but culturally speaking, lighter skin is often is 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 considered sort of more desirable. And, and it's it's still very widespread there. Um, and they actually think it's a very strange practice in America that people would go to tanning booths and such because it's so ingrained in the culture that lighter skin is more like uh, the sort of Brahmin goes to the caste system. Uh, the most racist things that I have ever heard in my life were uttered by, well, I'll just say it, were uttered by uh, either Muslim Iraqis or Muslim Afghans, uh, the craziest, most racist <laughs> things I've ever heard. And and it was one of those things where, you know, not I don't want to get into a gun battle with anybody over this, but I remember being like, wow, that is racist. <laughs> and, and it wasn't yeah. that unusual to hear that sort of stuff. So I think that most Americans just have no conception of that.
7: Right, exactly. I mean, I had to laugh when you said what you heard in Iraq and Afghanistan. I cannot agree more. I mean, shocking stuff. I mean, shocking to our American ears, but it's only shocking to our American ears because we don't get out that much to other cultures and understand how unbelievably bigoted they often are. Um, You know, one of the stereotypes is, you know, of, of American racism is, well, you know, black Americans have trouble hailing cabs. Well, if you go to New York, it's not like white rednecks that are behind the wheels of these cabs, generally. Um,
3: there's actually know the stats on this. They're About 75% of them are recently arrived immigrants, and also, uh, and, uh, and more than half of them are from the, uh, basically, South Asia region, from uh, Pakistan, right. India, and Bangladesh.
7: Right. And they didn't come here open-minded and then get tainted by American white supremacy. <laughs> they came with the values that they have. and. So, you know, it's uh, you're exactly right. Yeah. I mean, you never ask a
3: Saudi what they think about, you know, for example, African Muslims, because there's a decent chance you'll be horrified. You will be horrified. Oh,
7: much less never ask a Saudi or uh, or um, an Iraqi what they think of a Jewish person.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, If you want to get get ready
7: for your your hair to stand on end.
3: And and yet, if you ask somebody, well, you know, does America have the, if you ask a lot of college kids, does America have the greatest struggle with racism in the world today or the greatest legacy of racism? I I think you'd get an overwhelming number of kids on a lot of campuses saying yes. So it's just a question. It's not to excuse any racism or the history of slavery. It's just to put it in the proper context. But you have to know the history to put it in that context.
7: Right. Nobody. No rational, sane human being says there's no problem of racism that existed in the U.S. Of course there has been a problem. Of course it was much more systematic and comprehensive many years ago. Uh, And, of course, there are still racists. But the idea that these college students have, and that's what we're targeting and talking about here, is that America is uniquely racist, uniquely evil, uniquely committed to slavery. All of those things are fundamentally wrong.
3: David French is a staff writer for National Review. Check out his latest on nationalreview.com. David, always great to have you. Appreciate you calling in. Thanks so much for having me. Guys, we'll be right back.
1: You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
4: The blaze
3: radio network It's always amazing to me the, the the historical ignorance point is is uh is a fun one to talk about because the narratives that you hear especially on college campuses about about sort of, uh the u s and its role in history it's it's pervasive this idea that America is a uniquely morally uh failed and and sort of corrupt enterprise. And you see this. There's a lot of that with America. You also see it when people talk about uh, Israel. And sure, Israel, like like any country, has its imperfections, its failings, its uh, its idiosyncrasies, and its uh, you know its its problems. Um, but then you compare it to stuff in the region. You're like, well, it's not even really a contest, is it? And yet you look at all the UN resolutions and all the different designations that exist out there, and they're constantly trying to find some way uh, to undermine, uh, undermine the Jewish state, particularly when you get the sort of Muslim voting bloc together and, you know, you know how all that goes. I, I can't even tell you. I mean, the stuff that I, I, I mentioned it to when we had David on, but the stuff that I've heard from, and it's, it's particularly, look, I've spent, my professional travel has taken me to countries, tended to take me to countries that are Muslim-majority, so I, I can't speak to racism in East Asia or Southeast Asia particularly well or, or in South America, you know, it's not not really my, my area. But the racism that exists in the Muslim world is far beyond – it's just not – they don't even this, – this notion that, like, you're going to get in a lot of trouble for saying that people of a certain skin color or from a certain part of the world are less – than. I mean, you, you see the way, for example, that some of the rich Gulf Arab states treat uh, South Asian workers who are brought in to do the labor – And uh, and they're brought in from some other places in the world, too. But South Asia has been a a consistent source of sort of the laborers. And, you know, there's none of this none of this real effort to say, oh, well, you know, there's everyone who does a a day's hard work and is law abiding and and, and decent, you know, is of equal dignity to everybody else. That's I'm just telling you, that's not the prevailing attitude. Never mind. You know, never mind. You get a couple of rich Kuwaitis in a room and you hear what they have to say about stuff. And you're like, my God. I can't believe these people won the won the oil lottery and and now get to just get away with being so. Some of them are just so horrible. I got to tell you, there's there's a whole separate class of um, terrible, sort of terrible mindset and and incredible, uh, you know, incredible sort of distaste for the rest of humanity that you get from rich, very wealthy Gulf State Arabs, uh, Kuwaitis, Saudis. Uh, that is just—it's like nothing else I've, I've come across anywhere else. You, there's just a, there's a sense that they're they're like a better level of human being than other people. Uh, that's really and, and they don't try to hide it. You know, maybe you could say that there's like rich European aristocracy or something. It still thinks that they're they're better than others. But this is a you know this is even beyond that. So I, I just I always have to sort of you know laugh to myself when I hear people talking about how, oh. America. It's like we don't we're cowards when it comes to questions of race, like what Eric Holder said. I'm like, no, we're not. We talk about race a lot in this country. Um, and when you compare it to what goes on in other multi-ethnic states and, and the way that they deal with race relations, you know, the Europeans officially have a great have put a great sort of spin on all this stuff. But do a couple of Google searches about what soccer hooligans, how soccer hooligans react to Arab footballers, they mean soccer players, we call it soccer, Uh, uh, African football players, uh, soccer players, Uh, and and see the ways that, you know, they've had to suspend... When was the last time you had to suspend a sporting event in this country? I mean, literally say that the game is off because of the actions. And they'll still televise it, so the team gets sort of the money from the televised rights, but they won't allow local fans to go because of sometimes the racist actions of the supporters. So... I know people say, look, Buck, that, that doesn't that doesn't change that we've got our own problems here. Yeah, it's fine. But just I, I like this stuff to be uh, put in the proper context. Side note, uh, I'm sort of surprised. Huge spike in gun sales in October. I figured people would wait until after the election to decide whether or not they're going to get stuff before Hillary can make it illegal. But there are, they're are are They're not waiting. They're going right for it. Um Sort of surprised. Sort of surprised to see that. Okay. People are buying up guns left and right. FBI background check system processed 2.3 million checks in October. That is an all-time record for the month of October. So I think people think Hillary's... A a, a good number of people think Hillary's going to win. And they also think she's going to go after... Well, she will appoint a Supreme Court justice if she can get it through the Senate, who will try to truncate gun rights. And I think she will also use... Executive orders in whatever way that she can get away with it, Uh, especially now that the courts have been packed with progressive loyalists. So people are out there buying guns, an indicator of the election, perhaps, which way they think it's going.
4: The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: We often talk about the PCE police here, the culture of campus political correctness that has turned into a sort of totalitarian orthodoxy at colleges and universities across the country, and it has infected the wider culture, and it even emanates from the White House itself sometimes. Well, we're going to talk to somebody now who's been on the front lines of that fight, Michael Rechtenwald. He is a liberal studies professor at New York University University. And he's going to tell us about his experience fighting the PC police. Uh, Michael, great to have you on. Uh,
8: thanks for having me, Bob. All right. So
3: you started a, you started a, a Twitter account to sort of try to get some conversation going because you're not somebody who likes safe spaces. What did the uh, campus Gestapo do to you? Well, um, there was a,
4: there
8: were a number of things that took place on campus that I didn't like. Um, uh, one is the, that Milo Iannopoulos was uh, shooed off of campus and they canceled his event because they were concerned that people would wander accidentally into his ambit and as such would be, I guess, infected by what he had to say. Uh, then there, I noticed this uh, sort of Halloween costume patrol that was uh, being disseminated through the dorms vis-a-vis the uh... the r-a-s which basically suggested that you know everybody check their uh... costumes for potential bias and they do research and actually it said track your own online behavior uh... to make sure that you weren't being biased uh... then i noticed you know it's not just nyu this this my concern has to do with academia at large, and um, just so many ridiculous things. There was a uh, one uh, piece of decoration: a, a gorilla could not be used in like a diorama because the, the gorilla represented hypermasculinity. Um, Wait, what? There was a kid.
3: A gorilla represents yeah. hyper hypermasculinity.
8: <laughs> yeah, hypermasculinity. Therefore, it's it's uh, biased towards one. Gender wow. over another. All right. uh, then there was uh, this case where a kid picked his own pronoun. Uh, I think it was the University of Michigan allowed uh, students to pick their own prog- pronouns, uh, basically any pronoun they wanted, and the kid picked the pronoun His Majesty.
1: Which is pretty Which awesome. I found,
8: yeah, I found that hilarious, so I posted something about that on Facebook, and after that I was attacked by hundreds of people. And that's when I decided to go underground with the um, with the um,
3: a Twitter account uh, that you can say these things, right? Depl- deplorable uh, professor. Um, but I'm just wondering, what are the right. 400 people that were attacking you for? I mean, the His Majesty's thing is just objectively hilarious. Like, what was their problem? Why were they mad at you?
8: And they said it was uh, that I was uh, that I had betrayed them. And their and my support for them as trans people most most of them were trans and that my I had betrayed their my support uh, support uh, for them because I made light of these uh, pronoun issues. I thought the kid was really not, wasn't making fun of trans people as much as he was the university administration that would establish such a policy uh, and leave open uh, any kind of pronoun somebody would uh, Desire, you know. I mean, one could say His Highness, or you know, or whatever.
3: Yeah. Um, okay. So, so then you started. So, you started a, a an anonymous Twitter account to raise these issues without right. having to worry about your career, and you were right. talking about that. And then you decided to come out and say that that's me. Is that how it happened?
8: Well, what happened is uh, one of uh, a, a reporter for the Washington Square News, which is an NYU student newspaper, uh, started asking me questions and. Asking for an interview, and I said, Sure, I'll do an interview. Not sure whether I would come out. I did the interview, and it wasn't until after I'd finished the interview that I decided I, I haven't said anything objectionable. Um, there's nothing wrong with what I have to say, it's just a particular perspective. Uh, you know, I, I, there's nothing anti trans, anti gay, anti black, anti anything in what I'm saying, it's anti this particular regime of uh of uh control is really what it comes down to in my opinion um and are so, I, so safe I, spaces
3: I on NYU's campus just so I can ask about that that's a real thing I mean, they 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 do declare things to be safe spaces or they embrace this quote safe space doctrine this is this is at NYU this is real
8: apparently uh apparently they do uh It's really trickled down, and I shouldn't put it this way because uh, NYU will be upset, but it trickled down from the elite institutions, the most elite institutions, (laughs) to uh, our our tier. So we're talking about the top ten universities. This is where it all started, right? Um, Ironically enough, the most privileged students have uh, been the most vocal about their lack of privilege. So... um,
3: yeah, well, this is like this is like coming. progressives that, that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars and are always talking about how we need more taxes or something, right? But go ahead.
8: That they're, they're very upper middle class kids who want to find a way to be uh, othered or uh, subaltern or whatever, you, whatever you can. And they're, they're, there's like a race towards the bottom. I call it more subaltern than thou, is is the objective. Uh, it's a one downsmanship, if you will. Uh, so the lower you go, the higher you go. As everything gets flipped the whole hierarchy is flipped on its head so what you want to do is go for the bottom you know um and the lower you get on the bat I don't know if you ever used to play the game of bat when you had a bat and you'd go with your hands and go up the batter down the bat the bottom is the top so uh, okay Wait, so to so, so you gave this
3: push- interview you gave this interview to the campus paper you told them it was you and then what yeah.
8: happened then all hell broke loose um a committee in my, in my department saw fit to oppose me in mass. Uh, a whole committee of other faculty, two deans and a stu- couple students, wrote this letter saying why it was okay that I had an opinion, but it wasn't okay that I had an opinion. Uh, basically, they condemned me and said I should feel guilty for what I said, um, that, I ha- that I had guilt for my position, so in the, in the end it was like i 've always said about this stuff this is
5: this is religious
8: at base not not political this whole kind of this this kind of movement this this leftist movement, if you will is not is not political at base it 's religious at base, so they said I should be feeling guilty and that i you know I was incivil and uh, illogical and all this kind of thing they, they, they had no evidence they just said what they said Did they fact, say that
3: there was a, your your Twitter account was a cry this is what it says in the New york post here uh that they were concerned for your mental health it was that because that this was a <laughs> your the Twitter account was like a cry for help.
8: <laughs> oh my God, this shit has gotten so out of control what what it is is they called they called me in. That very day that the the committee wrote that, uh, wrote that, the
3: Are you blocking traffic there, Professor? No,
8: no, no. The very day that that, that that committee wrote the, uh, essay, I was called in by my dean and a person from HR was there and, uh... They said, you know, first of all, let us tell you this: this nothing to do with your publicity and the positions or any of your opinions on that interview or anything like that. This is strictly a different matter entirely. I was like, oh really? And uh, they said, you know, some some people have have uh, expressed concern for for you. I'm like, okay. Uh, and it really became apparent that they wanted me to take a leave of absence. So, uh, and all the while insisting that it had nothing to do with what I had said.
3: Seems fishy to uh-huh. me, Professor. Especially, I mean, at the heart of all this, you're you're a liberal studies professor. Not very liberal to uh, punish you for sharing your thoughts on matters of of you know free speech, public importance.
8: I, I'm not going to say anything about it. I, I I told I told them that if. Reporters and so forth are not their story. There's nothing I can do about it. Uh, I hear you. A reporter, a reporter uh, if reporters are suspicious of this particular explanation, that, that's not <laughs> yeah. really
3: my, I'm, my I'm fault. I'm suspicious, Professor Recktenwald, but that's on me. Michael Rechtenwald uh, <laughs> is a liberal studies professor at MyU. Professor, uh, keep us updated. Let us know what ends up happening here, all right? All
8: right, All will do. Thanks a lot for having me.
3: Thank you very much for joining. man, These campuses are crazy. It's insane what goes on in these places now. It's just gotten worse too. It's gotten worse from when I was you know when I was a student. I, know, I like to cause a little trouble here and there sometimes, nothing too crazy. But you'd think that these institutions at some point, there would be the sort of the snapback or the pushback against this kind of stuff because it's just unsustainable. Over time, people of uh, not even of, of sort of sound mind necessarily, just people who are willing to be honest about things will see this. And they've got to say to themselves, how can we consider ourselves a place or how can we consider this a place for higher learning and advanced education when ideas that are very much in the sphere of public debate, uh, when, uh, when ideas are constantly being banned? Uh, you know, the progressives, it's amazing that the progressives allegedly sort of started the free speech movement, you know, on campus and Berkeley. And I mean, I guess they did start it, but it was never really about free speech. It was just about subverting, as my, one of my professors had written on his uh, door, subverting the dominant paradigm and achieving power and then making people think what you want to think. I mean, just basically switch the paradigm, subvert it and then switch it and replace it with something else, with, with something that you like more. I just think it's so boring. If I were one of these students on campus, I I know that it's nice to constantly be patted on the head by professors and, you know, guys want to hang out with you and women want to be around you and all that stuff. If you're a a progressive social justice warrior on these campuses, I just get so intellectually bored after a while just and, and, and feel like such a little punk. You know, why not be a little bit of a rabble rouser on campus? That means being a conservative that means actually standing up and and challenging ideas i mean it it's fun to get into it with a professor i used to do it all the time you know it's it's fun to be the only person in a classroom who's taking a point of view that's completely rational but that's been cast out of uh, the realm of acceptable public discussion because of these these petty little dictators who aren't just on the campuses but run the campuses too i mean that's the thing it's not even just an issue of sort of immature students it's pushed by the administrators it's pushed by the deans and the professors and there are real consequences for people who run afoul of this stuff you know now I look back at college and I think yeah you know whatever and you basically just you know graduate and nobody really remembers and who cares but that's not really true I mean when you graduate from college uh, any sort of mark on your record or certainly anything that pops up about your time you know on the internet if you're considered to be socially uh outcast because you are not pro-trans or you do any of this stuff and the school paper writes about you or something you know this can affect your job prospects and there's sort of a domino effect for your future so on the one hand I mean I do kind of want to advocate for students to stand up and challenge this stuff but I, I also always want to say that you should do it in sort of the spirit of caution you know don't read a little Sun Tzu you know every battle is won before it is ever fought don't don't charge up the hill just to get machine gunned by the, by the, progressive, uh, by the progressive mafia. You know, Pick your battles uh, and don't let it affect your grades. I know I say that and people get mad at me, but you know, do what you have to do to get the grades you have to get to go on to get the job that you, you deserve. And, and don't, let, uh, don't let the leftists who have seized the telegraph office on campus mess up your future. That's just my thought. That's my advice. Uh, team, we'll be right back.
4: The Buck Sexton Show.
1: Discover more at theblaze.com/slash radio. The Blaze
4: Radio Network.
3: Oh man, I said that some of the Trump supporters would debase, I'm sorry, pardon me, whoops, Freudian. Some of the Clinton supporters would debase themselves uh, in, in their efforts to try to get Hillary elected. At the front of the line of the debasement, David Brock. Here's his explanation of Podesta saying, right after the New York Times breaks a story about Hillary's private server, that they need to dump the emails, here's what uh, Chief Hillary Uh, surrogate and attack dog David Brock has to say. Let it go. David, something
8: that doesn't work for Hillary Clinton is email. And again, we know that WikiLeaks, the content has been verified. We are concerned about who the hackers are. But I want to ask you about the John Podesta email back in 2015 that came out of WikiLeaks, which says, quote, we're going to have to dump all those emails. I mean, that's a tough one. as you know,
0: in in Washington parlance, dump means uh, release or make public
3: oh oh okay yeah that's what he meant yeah oh sure that's what <laughs> watching dump dump means make public oh yeah that's what he was referring to sure sure we're gonna have to take all the emails and and let them go to everybody isn't it interesting because that was Podessa's advice but but they deleted all of them isn't that so weird Podesta, who's her, like, top consiliary, says, quote, dump, and that means make public according to David Brock, which is hilarious, by the way. And they somehow decided to just go the total opposite direction and delete all of them and use a special program to overwrite them called BleachBit, so they'd be irretrievable. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Oh, I love it, man. This campaign's just madness. Madness left and right. Uh, good stuff. Team. Back here tomorrow on the Freedom Hut, 12 Eastern, as always. Uh, please download today's show. Uh, appreciate whenever you can share it with a friend. That's how the Freedom Hut team grows. We've already got a lot of show to talk about tomorrow. So until then, I hope you have a wonderful rest of day. Keep being the wonderful patriots that you are. And no matter what happens, shields high.
1: You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.